morning. Look at this. I feel like January has been an interesting month, so it's fun to see. Again, we're not quite to seeing smiling faces, but I can see some smiling eyes. Um, and it's good to see those of you who, I don't see you, but it's nice to have you with us online. My name's Jeff. I serve as the pastor here in um, we're going through the church calendar. We're in this series in the Gospels. We're going to be in the Gospels for a while. And the passage we're looking at today is Luke chapter 4, verses 22 to 30. And it's coming right off of the, ver- the passage we looked at last week as we're going through the church calendar this year. And I'm just kind of preaching the Gospel text that falls in year C of the Book of Common Prayer. And I thought this was pretty cool. I wanted to, to remind you, you know this, I think, but we've been so isolated and so disconnected Uh, that maybe sometimes we forget God is moving at our church. (laughs) God is moving at our church. Now, I know this because of the seat I sit in in our church family. And one of the things that is, one of the most beautiful things about being a pastor is I get a front row seat to God at work in the lives of the people here. One of the most frustrating things is that I can't tell you everything I hear. (laughs) They're not my stories to tell. There are some profound stories of faith in our church. And sometimes that's why you've got to get in Sunday school. You've got to get in small group. You've got to get next to people so they can tell you their story. I can't tell it to you. God is moving in our church. But I was reminded of this last week. Many of you will know Nancy Meyer. She's been a longtime part of our church family. And she had her grandkids with her last week. And so I think this is good discipleship from a grandma. Uh, she had three of her grandkids with her, I think. And she said, hey, I want you guys. It's a 40-minute sermon, too. <laughs> I want you guys to pay attention to the sermon. We're going to talk about it after church. So uh, at least one, I don't know, maybe they all took notes. She just sent me the picture of one of her granddaughter's notes, little Emma. She's nine years old. Nancy texted that to me last Sunday. We'll zoom in a little bit. If you weren't here last week, here's, I mean, a nine-year-old got this. So I feel like God's moving. Look, freedom. Love Jesus. Don't treat your neighbor as an enemy. Treat them as a brother or sister freedom of Christ is amazing. (laughs) She even got Jubilee. Jubilee's not a year, it's a person. Love your neighbor. God has given generously to you. I was like, a nine-year-old got all that? God is moving in our church, amen? I love it. It's great. Well, that was what we talked about last week. It actually was a really fun topic, Jesus' Jubilee. But I also told you that it's a hometown hero story Sort of. Remember? I said sort of. Now we're going to finish the story and you're going to see why I said sort of. It's an interesting passage. Actually, it's one of those passages, it's not as well known of a passage, and so I really enjoyed sitting with it this week. I think Jesus is always amazing. Luke chapter 4, 22. Remember, Jesus is in his hometown synagogue in Nazareth. He just read from Isaiah 61. We'll, We'll look at it in a little bit because it'll be part of what's going on here. He just read from it and he said, it's today. The Jubilee is today. Everywhere Jesus goes is Jubilee. And then verse 22 is where we'll pick up. Everyone spoke well of him. And we'll talk about what this means because I think sometimes this gets confused. They were amazed by the gracious words that came from his lips. What were those gracious words? We'll talk about And they asked, how can this be? Isn't this Joseph's son? I mean, Joseph from Nazareth. We know that. Where are these gracious words coming from? Uh, And then, my pages always move on me when I walk around. 
And then Jesus said, and this is where maybe it'll get, I mean, honestly, I think if you've never read this before, if it's your first time in a while, this should get a little confusing. Okay, gracious words, isn't this Joseph's son? And then Jesus says, you will undoubtedly quote me this proverb. I mean, what's going on that Jesus is like, well, you'll, you'll undoubtedly quote me, physician, heal yourself. Meaning do miracles here in your hometown like those you did in Capernaum. But I tell you the truth, no prophet is accepted in his own hometown. What do you mean? It seems like they're all amazed at your gracious words, Jesus. What's going on? So Jesus leans in a little bit more. Verse 25, certainly there were many needy widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the heavens were closed for three and a half years. You can read about that in 1 Kings. And a severe famine devastated the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of these widows. He was sent instead to a foreigner, a widow of Zarephath in the land of Sidon. First Kings. And many in Israel had leprosy in the time of the prophet Elisha. You can read about that in Second Kings. But the only one healed was Naaman, a Syrian. Now I'm going to pause there. Let me look around. I saw some smiling eyes before. Do I see any furious eyes? I don't see any. Just checking. I just want to see if what I read to you was offensive. Are you offended? I mean, some of you have a Bible in front of you. You won't throw that, but there's hymnals. Maybe you'd throw that at me. Is anybody mad? I don't see anybody mad. But I ask because if you're going to get into the story, everybody listening to Jesus was mad. Verse 28, when they heard this, you know, why? why are they? When they heard this, the people in the synagogue were furious. Jumping up, they mobbed him. We're going to talk about mobs. They mobbed him, and they forced him to the edge of the hill on which the town was built. I've been to Nazareth. That makes sense to me. They intended to push Jesus over the cliff. But as he often does, I jokingly call this ninja Jesus, he passed right through the crowd and went on his way. So let's get into this story here. What's going on? Well, sometimes people read this part of Luke and, and they think, well, they're, they're amazed at his gracious words. They must be wondering, how could this carpenter's son be so eloquent in his speaking? But that doesn't really fit with what follows. Why does Jesus say what he says? I think because Jesus knows what they're talking about. So let's go to Isaiah 61. I didn't read this last week, so we could look at it this week. Isaiah 61, Jesus quotes from this. He brings in a little bit of Isaiah 58. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me, for the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. Is what Jesus is all about. He has sent me to comfort the brokenhearted, to proclaim the captives will be released and the prisoners will be freed. That's why we talked about freedom and generosity last week. And Jesus, he's reading and he ends with this. He has sent me to tell those who mourn that the time of the Lord's favor has come. And that's when Jesus stops and sits down. But a lot of those people have heard this before, and they're like, that's not, where, that's not even where it ends. Jesus, you didn't say my favorite part. You know what my favorite part is, Jesus? It's when Isaiah says, and with it, the day of God's anger comes against their enemies. <laughs> In fact, it even goes a little bit farther. And to all who mourn where? To all who mourn where? In Israel. In Israel. Us. We. <laughs> they get a crown of beauty. So this is what's going on here. I, I think as, as you see the story play out, this is what's going on. Jesus intentionally stops where he stops. And the crowd gets all worked up. You didn't read my favorite part, Jesus. 
Jesus, you're from Nazareth. You're one of, you're one of Joseph's boys. You know, you, know who, you, know, you know what we're like. You know what, you, you know what we're about. You know who we hate the Romans. We hate our enemies. Why'd you leave that part out? And the people are amazed. They're amazed at his gracious words. They're already getting worked up a little bit because hate is a powerful thing. Unless you think I'm making too much of this, then you got to see what Jesus then says next. Let me remind you of the stories of our scripture. In Elijah's day, there were many widows in Israel in need, but where does Elijah go to a widow outside? A foreigner. And the story of Naaman is even more powerful. You read through it in 2 Kings, you get to know Naaman, you're thinking this is a great story of God's miraculous work, his healing, his generosity, his provision. But Naaman is a general of the enemy's army. Do you understand? God would heal. It's like God healing a Roman centurion in the first. They just have no, they have no space for it. They're infuriated. How dare you, Jesus? Those are the people we hate. Why are you speaking words of grace? This is the context. And I think it's important because as we get later into the gospel story, they want to kill Jesus, but they're trying to find a way to kill Jesus. And so it's blasphemy or whatever, right? Because Jesus is God in human flesh. So he says things they call blasphemy. But in this story, there's no blasphemy. Jesus is speaking well. He's loving the them. He's loving those people that they hate. So they literally want to kill him. So this morning we're going to talk a little bit about this hate. We're going to talk about the kingdom of Satan. But I do want to start by directing us to where we will land in our call to bring peace. You and I are called to be peacemakers, bringers of peace. And that can look a lot of different ways. It begins, I really do believe it begins with finding peace in God peace with God. If you're new to cross you, if you're new to Christianity, if you're struggling with life, if you're wondering about God, the good news is you can have peace with God through Jesus Christ. That's where it all begins. And I think you will discover that as you find peace with God, you will be able to find peace with yourself. Some of you may be here, you've been struggling, and you've read enough self-help books to make yourself go crazy. But you find out, man, it works for a month, but a year later, none of this has really helped me. Well, guess what? I got good news. You can start with Jesus. If you find peace with God through Jesus, you will find peace within yourself. But that is not where our commissioning, our mission ends. We are then called to bring peace into this war-torn world. We are called to be peacemakers. Now, one, one way of saying this is peacemakers don't seek to perpetuate the lines that divide us up. There's a lot of lines that divide us up. They were very clear in the synagogue in Nazareth. But peacemakers don't seek to perpetuate those lines. Peacemakers seek to find common ground and bring warring factions together. And I probably have your interest because you already know what kind of opportunity you have in the world we live in today, right? How many warring factions are there? And how many peacemakers do you know, really? Like people who are genuinely bringing peace. I don't think there's enough. One of the things that Jesus is doing, he's often doing, is changing our paradigm and redrawing lines for us. 
mean, he works really hard. You don't always notice it, but the enemy in the first century to every Israelite would have been Rome, 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 and the Romans. And Jesus comes along, and he's like, no, I love the Romans. The enemy is Satan. We'll talk about Satan. The enemy is the, the evil one. She's going to teach us to pray against the evil one. <laughs> the enemy is the sin that has corrupted your hearts. It's not those people. Jesus redraws the line and says the line between good and evil doesn't run between people groups. It runs through every single human heart. That's what Jesus begins to do, change our paradigm. I know it's hard, but if we're going to follow Jesus, we have to get rid of the idea that God is on a certain side of humanity. Because that's why we never have peace, because he's always on my side. He's never on. He's always on my side, right? God, I'm always on God's side. He's on my side. And it creates all kinds of problems. But peacemakers have to get beyond this broken, incorrect paradigm. And again, as, as Jesus is trying to do, this isn't new. I mean, Jesus is the clearest revelation of God, and so... So some of the things that were hinted at in the Old Testament but didn't make sense, get, they get their clarity in Jesus. He is everything that God wants to say. He is God in human flesh. But I was even, I, when I think about this, I, I, I drift back to Joshua chapter 5. Do you know the story? I remember, I honestly remember reading through the Old Testament in college for the first time and coming across this story and just being struck by the mystery of this moment where Joshua meets the commander of the Lord's army. You know what I'm talking about? He meets the commander of the Lord's army, and it's, it's either this angel or some people say it's the pre-incarnate Christ. It's a mystery. But Joshua is told to take his sandals off because it's holy ground. But there's this interesting exchange where Joshua says, are you a friend or a foe? Are you on our side or their side because you hold a lot of power? <laughs> you know what the commander of the Lord? Neither. Neither. I'm not on either side. Because earlier we're trying to learn this thing that Jesus is going to make clear for us. That the line does not run between us and them. It runs through every human heart. And and that's why I was hyping up the fury a little bit. You didn't feel the fury, but maybe if you were in the first century Nazareth synagogue, you would feel the fury. Jesus would not endorse the cherished us versus them hostilities of his own time. And when he speaks favorably of their hated enemy, they want to throw him off the cliff. So what I want to do next is I want to focus in a little bit on the mob. It's actually fascinating how often the mob shows up in the Gospels, even into the book of Acts. Even Paul has to deal with the mob. I don't have a ton of experience with a real-life violent mob. There was one time, I won't tell the story today, but there was one time I was overseas doing missions work, and I was pretty close to a violent, angry mob. It's the closest I've ever been to a physical, violent mob, but all of us are close to it all the time on the Internet now, aren't we? With social media, we have the ability to form a mob around issues and events all the time. And I want to remind you, and you can learn, if you don't know this, maybe I may remind you or tell you, if you read the Gospels, you will see that Jesus doesn't entrust himself to the crowd. He never entrusts himself to them. When the mob gets worked up into a frenzy, Jesus just slips away. It just it happens again and again. And there's these interesting dynamics. There's a lot of dynamics. I'm not an expert, but I want to share a few things that I think are pretty clear, and they are important as you get into the Gospel story. 
People will do in a mob what they would never do as an individual. You may have seen that even online. You, maybe you've you've done something just in the fury of the internet mob and you posted something and you couldn't believe. People will do stuff in a mob they would never do as an individual. And I know, because I've heard people say, I know, I know that people you know and love have posted things on the internet that you know they would never say to your face. (laughs) It was just this mob dynamic. It's, I think we could call it demonic. And I wanted to spend more time on this for the sake of time. This would have been another sermon, and we'll get there someday. But, but I will throw this out to you because John chapter 8, a lot of times the mob forms around Jesus until we get to the Garden of Gethsemane. He just keeps slipping away until it's his time. But there is one place where somebody else is at the focal point of an angry mob, and Jesus de-escalates the situation. <laughs> in John chapter 8, the woman caught in adultery and the Pharisees who are ready to stone her. Again, you can imagine the Pharisees are maybe, maybe decent people, but in the mob, they become something different. I mean, that's the, that's the demonic logic, logic of stoning, right? I can throw a stone, and I'm not, the, I'm not guilty of murder because I only threw one. That's some of the demonic logic. And Jesus, I mean, you can read it on your own, John A., but, but it's been a, a helpful passage for me in the past two years. How does Jesus step into the situation and save the woman and the Pharisees? Because, he, because he, doesn't, he doesn't see things the same way. He doesn't see this line down the middle dividing. He, see, he actually sees good and evil in every human heart. And so somehow he, in his love, he has the ability to, to save the Pharisees from killing this woman. But he also has the, the, the ability to save this woman. And I also want to say, because I think the internet makes it, I mean, it's really tricky, but I want to say this. Jesus does not start with what, who is right and who is wrong, but he also doesn't abandon truth. And I think that's important. Uh, he doesn't abandon truth. After the whole thing's finished, this woman is caught in adultery. He says, go and sin no more. Yeah, what you did was wrong. Go and sin no more. Change your ways. Change your life. He doesn't abandon truth, but he doesn't think solving the issue of who is right and who is wrong on these drawn lines that we make is the most important way to engage. And I just look at this, and I hope for you it stirs a curiosity. How do we learn to love like Jesus? I have that curiosity. I want to learn to love like Jesus. I don't know how he does it. I don't. I wish I I don't know. I'm still learning. I hope you're still learning. And I really believe, even as we continue to talk about this this morning, I really believe if, if you and I can get to this place of humility that says, I don't have it all figured out and I'm still learning to love as Jesus loved, I think that'll cover a multitude of sins. I really do. And I also, and I've said this before, I think it's really interesting. If you read through the gospel. It sure seems to me Jesus is far more focused on who's humble and who's proud than he is on who's right and who's wrong. Now that might be paradigm shifting for some of you. It kind of was for me the first time I really discovered it, but it's true. Jesus has a lot more to say about pride and humility than he does about who's right and who's wrong in these little settings that he comes across. Well, the mob can take many forms. But I want to focus on one example this morning as it relates to the gospel story. So we're talking about peace and peace with God and peace within yourself. I want you to imagine you get a group of people 
who haven't quite yet found peace with God. And they also certainly haven't found peace with themselves. And so because of that, they're carrying around a lot of fear. Carrying around a lot of insecurity. They're carrying a lot lot of anxiety. They're not at peace with God. They're not at peace with themselves. And some of that translates into rage and wrath. And one of the dynamics of the mob, I think it's playing out in Luke chapter 4, plays out in other places in the gospel, it plays out in real life, is that you get this group of people feeling this fear and insecurity and rage. And what they do is they pool this all together. They pull together their fear and their rage and their hate and they project it on one person or maybe a group of people. So I think a common example of this is boys on the playground. Maybe girls too, but I was a boy, so I know it's true of boys. Imagine boys on the playground and they want to figure out who's the strongest and who's the toughest, but there's a little bit of anxiety and fear because they they don't really know And they don't really want to fight each other, but they want to know. So what do they do? They don't necessarily consciously do this, but they agree to pick on one kid. They pick one kid and they they agree to pull all their anxiety and their insecurity to to fake this toughness and strength. And they they just project it on one kid. It's what we call bullying today, right? And they just, they just unleash it. They just fired out this one person. All their blame just on this one person. And it, and it brings this sense of peace to the community, doesn't it? It's not real peace. But it brings this sense of unity and peace. And we don't have to fight each other because we're all just scapegoating this kid. And it brings a sense of peace for everyone except for the kid who's scapegoated, who's literally living in hell. I mean, that happens. And then everyone else who doesn't really care if they're the toughest or not just sometimes steps back and says, well, at least it's not me. <laughs> I'm not the toughest, but at least I'm not the kid getting nailed down over there. This is all foreshadowing for how Jesus then becomes the ultimate scapegoat. On the cross, Jesus becomes the scapegoat of the angry mob yelling, crucify him, crucify him. On the cross, these ways of scapegoating of the powers and principalities are put to shame because we finally see, okay, this is is who's in power. This is who's in control. And if Jesus is the, 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 the the purest, most innocent person who's ever lived, And if this is what humanity does to the most innocent person who's ever lived, now we see how broken this place is. Jesus reveals the atrocities of scapegoating. This this feeling of fake peace. And it's not blind to Luke. Look at Luke chapter 23. As we're getting close to the Good Friday narrative of everything of the cross, we're we're in the thick of it. In Luke 23, verse 11, then Herod, who would have been one of the boys on the playground, am I the toughest? Am I the toughest in Israel? Herod and his soldiers began mocking and ridiculing Jesus, bullying Jesus. And they put a royal robe on him to make fun of him. And then what do they do? They send him back to Pilate, who's one of the other boys on the playground, jockeying to see who's the toughest. And what does Luke say? 
Herod and Pilate, who had been enemies, became friends that day. Man, that is wicked unity. That is evil at work. That hate and bullying would bring people together. (laughs) This is where Jesus then, as we talk about peace, this is where Jesus begins to bring radical, life-altering, holy love and peace. I mean, it's, it's holy because it's other. It's different. Nobody else. Jesus brings, this is part of what gets Jesus in trouble. He brings peace, but he brings it in a way that it's never been brought before. It's, it's pretty shocking when you think about it, right? Jesus allows himself. Read the Gospel of John. He allows the mob to take him. <laughs> it's very clear in John's Gospel. He allows himself to become the scapegoat when it's the right time. And then he just allows humanity to gather up, to pull up all our anxiety, all our fear, all our insecurity, all our hate, all our anger, all our rage, all our sin, and we just fired at Jesus on the cross. Each one of us together collectively. And Jesus lets it happen. And Jesus absorbs into himself the sin of the world. He absorbs evil, the the worst evil can do to him. And what does Jesus then do? He goes to the grave. He overwhelms death with life. And he recycles all of that hatred into love and mercy and forgiveness. And what are the first words spoken by the resurrected Jesus? Peace be with you. Now that's real peace. And that's how it comes. Take on the sin of the world. Take on the worst evil can do. And then Jesus gives back love, mercy, and forgiveness. That's how it comes. The Lamb of God, the scapegoat, does not come back seeking revenge. Jesus, imagine what would happen to Pilate and Herod if Jesus came back and was like, tried to kill me, (laughs) but death has no word over me. I mean, Jesus could could exact all kinds of revenge, but that's not what he's about. No, I've taken this on because because your heart is a mixture of good and evil. And I've come to save you from the accuser. We'll talk about the Satan. I've come to save you from your pride, your selfishness, and your sin. And yes, this is the only way it's going to be. You have got to... You've got to allow me to take your sin so I can set you free and give you life. These are gracious words. And if they're hard to hear, maybe they should be. They were hard for the people. Maybe because maybe if they're not hard to hear, you're not hearing them. They were hard to hear for Jesus' disciples. What did you, I mentioned this last week. We were talking about this different kind of posture. And I said, Jesus, one of the interesting things that he does, I reference Matthew 20, or you can go to Mark chapter 10. But Jesus, he, he says, no, I haven't called you to be masters. I've called you to be servants. None of you are masters. You're all servants. You're servants of each other. You're slaves to one another. That's what Jesus says. And it comes out of the context of James and John thinking, just like we always do, that this is how peace comes. This is how it always works. The kingdom of God is going to be just like the kingdom of Caesar, just like the kingdom of Pharaoh, they're all the same. And so James and John say, and actually one, I love it because in one of them, it's it's their mom. I love the picture of the mom doing this. 
Can my boys sit at your right and left hand when you come in power? James and John ask, can we, sit, can we be a part of the rulers of your new kingdom? And Jesus' response, and he probably says this to you and me too all the time. You have no idea what you're asking. That is not for you. Yes, you will suffer. You have a cup to drink and a baptism to go through. But to sit at my right and left when I come into the kingdom is not for you. It's for other people. And I don't know if you've ever done this. I, I will vulnerably admit I've done this back a few, I was early on in my walk when I was reading the Gospels. But in my selfish pride, I remember thinking, oh, it's not for James and John. What if it's for me? <laughs> Have you ever done that? Who are the two next to Jesus? Maybe I could be one of them. Oh, Jeff, you have no idea. Because if you read through the gospel story, we know the two. We already know. Turns out they were criminals crucified next to Jesus. Because his coronation, his enthronement, his crowning is a crown of thorns. And he takes his throne on the cross. And so the, Jesus is like, well, you're going to suffer, but I've got other things for you, James and John. There's going to be these criminals next to me. You don't realize what you're asking. You're asking to be crucified with me. Now, it's not, I've got other things for you. That's why I'm training you up. But we all have to, like, rethink. I have our paradigms shifted by Jesus. What I'm trying to tell you is that Jesus' kingdom is radically different. And it comes in radically different ways. And it's one of the reasons you'll read through the Gospels and Jesus says, I've come to bring peace because he has. Peace with God, peace with yourself, peace with one another. Jesus has come to bring peace. He's the Prince of Peace. But if you read the Gospels, he'll also say, I didn't come to bring peace. And I think what he means in those contexts is I didn't come to bring peace the way the world brings peace. That's not real peace. Even in his days, Rome sold this Pax Romana. You understand, Rome said, we will bring you peace, let us subjugate you. And Rome kept their peace with the cross. I mean, the cross was the instrument of violence that scared everybody into submission. That's why what Jesus did is so incredible, because he turns this instrument of violence into an instrument of mercy and forgiveness, a symbol of new life. So if you want peace, in the ways of Cain and Abel. Well, Jesus isn't going to give you that kind of peace. And he's going to shake things up and he's going to turn things upside down. So I, I, I said I was going to do this last week. I want to spend a few minutes contrasting the kingdom of God with the kingdom of Satan. I think this will be helpful. And then I have a story. We'll try to end on a high note. But this isn't as much fun to, to dredge through, but I think we need to have eyes to see this stuff. Last week, and they were kind of in the notes of my nine-year-old friend, Emma. Last week, we talked about the generosity of God. And I said, the kingdom of God is founded on love. And it comes with a spirit of advocacy. It's important I say it this way. The Holy Spirit is a spirit of advocacy. That means he's for you. It does not mean he won't convict you. He will. The Bible is very clear. The Holy Spirit will convict you of sin. He will challenge you. He will confront you. And he will warn you. He will say difficult things. Sometimes you don't want to hear them. But they're always for the purpose of helping you become beautiful. <laughs> Restore you into the image of the God you were created in. He's for you. He's advocacy. And I, and I wanted you to imagine, imagine getting together a group of people that all embody the spirit of advocacy built on love. 
that creates, that's real peace. If you're all for each other, that's real peace. And if you can ever find this place, and oh, by God's grace, would cross you become this place, a place of peace, then we'll start to see freedom and liberation. Because that's what comes. Now that we have peace, we're liberated, we're free. Now, how does that contrast with the kingdom of Satan? I did allude to some of this last week, but you go back. I think it's so important to go back because we're talking about the kingdom of God rearranging things. Human civilization was founded by Cain, who killed his brother Abel. So human civilization was founded by a murderer. Just gotta, that's the way the Bible tells the story. Cain was jealous of his brother, and he began to think not of God's abundant kingdom, Right, this, this water that you'll never thirst again. That's what Jesus talks about. This ever-flowing water, this fountain of life. It's abundant. You never run out. 5,000, we can feed them. But Cain begins to operate in a mindset of scarcity. And so his brother is no longer his brother. He becomes his rival. There's not enough. I live in a world of scarcity, and so now you're my rival. Now I've got to get it before you get it. And rivalry leads to accusation. That's, you've heard me say this before, but Satan is not a proper name. Hasatan is the Satan in Hebrew. It's the accuser. Diabolos is the slanderer. I mean, it's, it's not a proper name. It's the accuser. And so instead of love, you have rivalry. And instead of the Holy Spirit of advocacy, you start to get the unholy spirit of accusation. A spirit of accusation. Now, I want to say this, because I'm trying to make this clear, because I think I haven't always ta- taught this fully in the past, and I think some of you have misunderstood sometimes. Again, the spirit of advocacy will confront, will convict, but always for you. The spirit of accusation is an angry, vengeful spirit. It's the spirit of malicious accusation intended to malign, harm, and hurt you. It's not for you, it's trying to tear you apart. Maybe the image you think of is you're in the water, and you're with somebody else, and you're both starting to get tired, and you're losing your energy, and so what do you do? This is, I think of this as a spirit of accusation. You push the other person down so you can hold your head above water. And it's, it's not for you, it's against you, it's maligning, it's harming. So rivalry leads to accu- accusation, and then, of course, accusation leads to violence. Cain kills his brother. Now, you, read, you read the beginning chapters of Genesis. They're really worked up about violence. God's really worked up about violence. Violence is a big deal. And violence then leads to domination, oppression. Actually, I was reminded of this this week. I, thought was, I hadn't really made these connections before, but there's two places where the, we talk about how the Hebrew prophets are writing these poems, and they even say things beyond what they know they're saying. And there's two places in Hebrew poetry of the prophets where they seem to tell us about the history of this evil one, the Satan, the accuser. There's some debate in scholarship. I tend to think they're talking, or they're, they're talking about other people, but I tend to think the poetry is going beyond these people to tell us about Satan. One of them is Ezekiel 28. You can find it. There's a lot of Garden of Eden imagery. This, this beautiful one. They're talking about the king of Tyre, but he would have been one who was dominating and oppressing. 
And it's interesting that the beauty of this king leads him to violence. You can read it. It's, you'll see why people think it's talking about Satan, Ezekiel 28. But the other one, and I think this is even more interesting, is Isaiah 14. It's the fallen stars where we, sometimes people call the devil Lucifer. It comes from this passage. In Isaiah 14, who is Isaiah talking about? The king of Babylon. That's one of the things I've been trying to help us see more and more, this theme of Babylon in the Bible, this theme of total oppression and domination, which Rome is now manifesting in the first century. And Isaiah is prophesying about the king of of all places, Babylon, and he begins to tell us that the Satan is a fallen star. It's interesting. It's the kingdom of Satan, rivalry and accusation and violence and domination and oppression. Now contrast that. You tell me where you'd rather live. What citizen do you want to be? One of rivalry, accusation, violence, and domination, and oppression, or instead of rivalry, love? And instead of accusation, advocacy? And instead of violence, peace? You're one who brings peace. And instead of oppression and domination, liberation and freedom? Because God set you free, you are now Helping others be free. I mean, that's the contrast. And unfortunately, or maybe for, but there's only, there's only two choices. There's no middle ground there. There's the kingdom of Satan and there's the kingdom of God. <laughs> that's what we're left with. So what I want to try to do then as we talk about, I mean, these are some of the darker, heavier things, but I want to Kind of end with trying to spark your imagination to be a person of peace in a war-torn world. I mean, one of the Beatitudes is, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. They will, they will work in the family business. <laughs> so how do we begin to think differently? How do we let Jesus change our paradigms? How do we let Jesus draw new lines so we see who our true enemy is? So that we embrace humility. How do we find new ways, Jesus' ways, to see the world, to see the problem, to see the solution, to see those people, to see us, to see our own evil in our own hearts? And I found this story compelling. It's certainly not everything. I'm just trying to spark your imagination. We need to spark our imaginations. It's a true story. In an urban apartment complex in San Antonio, there was a gated tennis court in the complex. The tennis court was kept in pristine condition. Its fence was locked and could only be unlocked by members of the apartment complex. Adjacent to the tennis court, but outside the fence, was a basketball court where many of the teenagers would play pickup basketball. In the summer heat, between games, the kids would jump the tennis court fence in order to get a drink from the only water fountain on the apartment grounds. This created a significant argument between apartment residents. A faction grew between those who didn't mind teenagers jumping the fence and those who thought it was ruining the tennis court. People took sides. They formed coalitions. And they began to say awful things about each other through social media. Go figure. The apartment Facebook page was a hot mess. The language of fear was everywhere. One person said... I fear we are telling kids they can't be kids. And another person said, I fear we are telling kids they can be vandals. 
Now what do you do? How do you engage a situation like this creatively with love? How do you, like Jesus, step into a, a mob of anger and rage and bring peace and freedom? How do you do that? Well, one sunny afternoon, a creative disruption occurred. Because that's what lo- love is a creative disruption. Across the street from the apartment complex in the basketball court, someone installed on their own dime a free drinking fountain in their front yard. (laughs) And they posted a sign that said, have a drink on us. The fear factions came to a screeching halt. The homeowner had broke open a space, a space to be together at their own expense. They disrupted the polarized standoff. And everybody noticed. The whole community noticed. This person didn't weigh into the hostility. They didn't take sides. They simply sought connection, community. When I interviewed George, who was in his 50s, he said, I'm not sure what I think about kids jumping fences. I just wanted those kids to have a drink. (laughs) And now I get to say hello to them when they're in my front lawn. I mean, notice this. Jumping the fence was not his focus. That was the focus on social media. That's not what he was focused on. He was focused on love, relationship, bringing peace into a war-torn world. (laughs) And that's what Jesus is focused on. They weren't ready to hear it in his hometown synagogue of Nazareth. They wanted their enemies. But Jesus in Luke 4, he's beginning a ministry. He's going to teach people that we're called to love our enemies. We're called to seek peace. We're called to bring peace. We're called to ask the question, maybe before we ask, or maybe while we're asking, but we don't just ask what's right and what's wrong. We ask, how can we bring people together? How can we bring peace? Yes, we will talk about right and wrong. That is important. Grace and truth. But maybe we learn to calibrate that a little bit. Maybe we spark our imagination. (laughs) Jesus blesses the peacemaker. And he says to us, you'll be children of God. You'll work in the family business. You'll start to look more like your heavenly father. You'll look like dad. You make peace in this world, you'll start to look like dad. (laughs) I want to look like our heavenly father. Let's pray that we would be that kind of people. Now, Jesus, I don't know. I do think I enjoyed working on this this week, but I definitely wouldn't use the word fun this week. It's heavy. I don't always like to think about evil. I don't like to talk about it. And I certainly, <laughs> I certainly don't like to be challenged in how I want to fight back against evil. But Jesus, I do believe that at Crossview, you have a collection of people who look at you and say, Lord, where else would we go? I mean, you look at us and you confront us with challenging love and mercy and forgiveness. And it stirs something in all. It stirs something to me. It stirs something in all of us. And I think you do. I think you look at us and you say, you want to go too? You want to be a part of that angry crowd? You want to grab a stone too? And we say, Lord, we're sinners. Where else would we go? Only you have the words of eternal life. So Jesus, would we recognize the grace and mercy that you poured out for us 
when you took our sin on the cross and then literally breathed peace into our lives. (laughs) And I don't know. I don't think I'm the only one in this room or online who would say, I'm tired of war. I mean, maybe peace means I have to take up my cross, but I'm done giving my life to things that don't work. I mean, I'll take up my cross. I want to be a part of bringing peace. That seems like worth giving my life to. There's a whole lot of shadow peace in this world. It's worthless. It just makes things worse. You get the angry man out, and then he just comes back with more angry man. It just gets worse. So Jesus, turn us into peacemakers. You've given us peace with you. You're giving us peace with ourselves. And you're sending us out to give peace to others. We want to work in the family business. And we need you. Holy Spirit, we need you to do this work. And we want to do it together. So we invite you to lead us, Jesus. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.